Hello and welcome to the Women in Film and Television Ireland podcast. I'm board member and filmmaker Marisa Arroy. In the third installment of our Can Conversation series, we look at working on long-form projects from a different viewpoint. At the Can Film Festival in 2023, Gemma Cray caught up with anthropologist Rike Floden, who is working with artificial intelligence to understand film audiences. Could this be a new way of developing your next film? Also on this episode, WIFT board member and director of photography Yaro Valdek was in conversation with film still photographer Giabella James. James has photographed films such as Dreamgirls and Star Wars The Force Awakens. And here she discusses her photography career in the movies. This podcast has been made possible with the support of the Screen Ireland Stakeholder Fund. about um, what, who you are, what's your background? Okay, my name is Reke and I'm a trained anthropologist and for the last three years I've been working with audience building in the European film industry. So I come from a Danish-based company called Publikum.io, which is a service that we offer for European filmmakers who want to get closer to their audience in an early stage development. Uh, and tell me a little bit about what that looks like. Um, who are the films that you've helped? What so we have been working with uh, over 60 films at this stage and uh, what the filmmakers get is is a deep insight into their audience and their potential audience group. So we use a combination of AI and anthropology to make sure that the filmmakers can get inspired from the audience and by the audience in their development process. So taking in inspiration for the development of the story, but also getting them input and inspiration for positioning and launch later on. So how to talk to an audience, but also how to make sure that your film is relevant to your audience based on the themes that you want to to do in your story. Okay, and give me an anecdote about how that might work for my film. I'm a director working closely with a producer. I have this great story, this great script that I'm looking to develop. What stage do you come on and how does the data feed into the story? So you can, we can enter your project pretty much at any stage that you want. So we've been doing projects together with uh, Microfilm in Norway. On a, They didn't have an, a project at all, but they had a target group that they wanted to reach. So they knew that they wanted to make a film for the 13 to 16-year-olds. But they also knew that they themselves were adults so that they was not they were not really sure what's going on in, in the life of a 13 to 16 year old so that was very early development really trying to figure out what are these young people into and what could then become relevant for them in, in a content we also worked with um, projects where it's been a first draft of a script, second draft, where we take parts of the script, we can take a synopsis or elements, it can be selected scenes or character descriptions, and we can share that with the audience and getting their feedback and inspiration and, and their reaction to the material, making sure that the filmmakers can be inspired by the reactions that they actually impose in their audience. Brilliant. And where do you where does the data come from? Do you social media, the internet? How do you find that? So the data, we do all our processes are built in two steps. So the first step is an AI analysis looking into the semantic and selected conversations. So that is uh, written data from open sources online, meaning that we can type in a long search string based on the theme that you want to know more about. For instance, we helped uh, the film that was on uh, on certain regard last year, Sick of Myself. They wanted to know more about how do people in Scandinavia talk about narcissism. So we looked into uh, Norway, Denmark, Sweden and figuring out what is 
how do people talk about a narcissist? What is a narcissist? And what we learned there was that in the three different countries, narcissism was very different. So in Denmark, the narcissist was someone that you should be aware of because often it would be a man who you were in a relationship with. So it would be dangerous for you. So you had to protect yourself from the dangerous narcissist. In Sweden, it was much more of a holistic approach. So there it would be talking about the narcissist as a patient so someone who was a victim and had to get help in some sort from the system and in Norway the narcissist was super useful because he was often a CEO or he was a politician so it was a very useful way of taking in the narcissist so even though the three countries are so similar you could really see that there was a cultural difference and that helped the filmmakers when they were to position the film so talking about narcissism because their lead character is uh, a female narcissist so also that element of surprise that you don't often talk about females as narcissists that's very very interesting and do you is there anything in your research that surprises you about human nature and and like and what people are thinking at the moment like it must it must be very insightful it's very insightful and i think it's as i said we've been on 60 projects meaning that meaning that we've been looking into 60 different themes in nine different countries so it's always surprising i think to be to get a deeper understanding of what people actually think about specific topics in their lives because people often engage in online deb in debates too. And then in step two, we engage in mobile ethnography. So that's pretty much anthropology on the smartphone, meaning that we get to interview people and we ask them about their immediate reactions and their reflections on the selected materials from the film. So there we get the more in-depth understanding and the connection to the to the script itself where the first part is much more of a, a discourse analysis of, of contemporary conversations you could say very interesting and tell me a little bit about um, what you guys are doing at Cannes I know you work a lot with um, the uh, various cultural institutions in different countries to try and disseminate this but yeah so we are in Cannes to have meetings with uh, national film institutes that we don't already work with. So trying to explain a bit about what it is that we're actually doing. Then we are catching up with uh, with old clients and old people we've been working together with to hear about where their project is now. Because often when we leave the project, there will still be three more years before the film is finished because it's early stage development. So so that, and then we meet up with producers and, and talk about what how is working with audience building in early stage development how is that beneficial both in the creative development but also for distribution and for uh, seeking out more finances or for positioning later on so that's our can agenda tell me a little bit about um, uh, your basically what are some surprising insights that we might not know about um, you know like maybe different generations or mm. how different nationalities perceive things Yeah, I think we've been we've been doing a really big research study with the Danish Film Institute looking into the young audiences, so that's the 7 to 18 year olds. And I think something we learned from that research was that today the the, the young audience today which will be the future audience in general, they are much more interested in in emotional realism than in social realism. So they're so capable of engaging and relating themselves to characters that are not necessarily their own gender that are not their own age because they are looking for the emotional parts of the character so often in Denmark there's been a really strong tradition of creating content for young audiences that is very social realistic but we can see that the young audiences in Denmark they would much rather watch a high school film from Thailand or from Korea than they would watch a Danish series about high school so there has to be some sort of we call it uh, an everyday plus element or an elevated everyday aspect to the stories to attract the young audience 
So, so I think that's something that's been really surprising, but also very helpful when we talk about the young audiences in general. And if I'm a producer and I engage your services, what does it look like? We sit down, we have a chat about maybe this is the audience that we're looking for, this is the areas that we're looking to promote the film in and where it's set, and then maybe we come up with a plan. You guys give me the data or we work together in creating a sound? What's the kind of day-to-day? We work together. So in a typical process, we would have three workshops together where the first workshop would be much more of a let's get to know the project, what's your intention, who do you believe your audience is, is there a secondary target group that you could be curious to explore if there could be an, an audience hook in them. Then we go back, we do our first step of the analysis, which is looking into the, the AI-driven part of it. And here we have already agreed with you, are you interested in knowing about your home market or do you want to know your home market plus an export market? So are we doing a comparative analysis or are we really getting to know your core home market audience? We meet again, we present the findings, we bring that as structured reflections because we don't want to bring conclusions. We are not filmmakers, we are anthropologists, so we want to leave everything in the creative decision process to the creative team, but we want to be able to inspire them and give them as much input as possible. Based on that presentation, we will go back again. We will do the in-depth mobile ethnography, and then we'll meet for the final workshop where we sit together and we present what we call an audience book, really putting everything together that we have learned about your audience, their behavior, what attracts them in your story. Is there anything that you can amplify in your story that would generate a more... uh, a different reaction in your audience? Is there something you would use even more to provoke them further? Or what are you looking to implement in your story, really? So, that's so amazing because it helps you connect with someone on a very fundamental level, but using something that's very kind of almost in theory cold. Um, one of the, the sort of statements that you always hear is, I want a global store, or I want a local story that sells on a global level. Mm. And then, like, basically, it's, it's you want those kind of colloquial stories that resonate with everybody. How true is that or how can you kind of help people source those stories? I think what we can help is we can take your story, we can take the base, the, the overall theme in your story and then we can do a cross-country analysis. So really investigating if you're, if you're working on this theme, for instance, with the narcissism, how can that be relevant in the different markets? Should there be different angles in your positioning that will generate a, a unique audience curiosity in, the, in each of the countries that you want to, to move into? But also we can do that in the mobile ethnography. We can say, okay, we're going to share a bit of the script. Do people in different countries react in different ways? And often they do. Um, for instance, if we're looking into the horror genre, we know that people the audience behavior in different countries it varies so what the latin american or the latin audience want in a horror film is not the same as the american audience wants in a horror film and what would they want in a horror film so in the latin they would be much more into things that relate to the church so it would be a very religious element that would generate that element of horror where in the states it's 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 a broader approach clowns for instance is often something that works really well they terrify a lot of people but especially in in the usa where we can see that when we look into for instance in denmark it's not that denmark makes so many horror films but but some things that people really are interested in that is that the the things that are not tangible in a way in everyday life that's like the psychological horror is so much more a hit in in denmark than for instance uh body horror or like a really dramatic thing so I think that you can by looking into the different cultures you will also get to understand what drives the audience interest in general and how can you then 
take advantage of that when you are about to make your film or talk about your film or present it. And very interesting. And when it comes to genre, are there any examples of like maybe common mistakes people make that they'll assume this is this is a loved trope that really gets to people, or, or is there anything sort of unexpected that you find in the data that you know maybe people should be aware of? I think sometimes it's also about if you sometimes. The, often the teams we work with are also just being confirmed in, in what they already know. So it can also be about giving them a certainty that their gut feeling was right. Uh, and in other cases, it's about giving them nuances. So for instance, we've been looking into Norway in how do people talk about the rom-com as a genre? And then how does it differ if it's a, if it is an American rom-com com, uh, compared with a Norwegian rom-com? Are there different expectations? And there are, and often we can see that local language is something that it can be very tricky, especially with the young audience, because they are much more able to spot if the language feels off, if the dialogue is off. They would say, we don't talk like that. Where when if they watch an American show, they are not as familiar with the language, so they cannot really read from the from the scenes if the language feels authentic so authenticity is something that we often often find when we do audience research people will say i don't think this is so authentic or if this was if this is to be authentic i think it could be unfolding like uh, this instead so the audience will often also just bring their input into what could then make that story feel authentic for them and also be relevant in their lives so i think it's the combination and can it be used as well, or is that maybe something in the future? Is that something you guys do now? Um, you know, to track how diversity is authentically represented on the screen, or even class. And I know this varies from um, culture to culture so differently. Like both of that, mm. those distinctions, what's one in one wouldn't be one in another. But is is that something that's looked at, or? I think it's something that we look into because often the the, the teams come with a desire to know more about it. So we did a film in Norway where it was it was a queer story, a queer love story. And there we learned that for the audience, it was much stronger if we, in that case, just talk about it as a love story. Don't talk about it as a queer story. Just let it be a more, just let it be a, a regular story about two people who love each other rather than going out and, and positioning it as a queer love story. And still they would say that it was very nice that it was there, that it was represented, but that it was also perhaps easier for a bigger audience to enter the story if we just talk about it as a love story. So I think it, it's always something that we are aware of, also in terms of, of character and character representation in general. I think for the Danish audience, they often they, they call it out if they feel that it's a fake representation. So they will say, okay, I mean, if you want to do representation, then give the character a full background story. Don't just add characters to add representation visually, but then give them a purpose in the story. So I think that's something that the audiences are more aware of now than they have been earlier. And how often does the data change? Like, have you, in the time that you've been doing this, noticed differences in trends as things move along or perceptions? Because I do think, like, with AI, things seem to be moving so fast. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's, what's unique for us is that once we have looked into a theme, we don't go back to it again. So we will take a, let's call it like a still of, of present day and we will look into how are these conversations unfolding now. I'm sure that if we would revisit some of the things we did three years ago, the conversations will probably look different. Also, 
it's been a, there's been a global pandemic and things have changed and people will have prioritized differently. So I'm sure that there will be changes. But but since we don't do like regularly follow ups, that's a really hard thing to to check. Yeah, exactly. So, and, but it's so interesting. Um, I, I'm sure there's plenty of people listening that would like to learn more. So where can they find out about um, work here? So they can uh, go to our website. It's called publicum.io and they can read more about the tools that we're using and, and selected cases that we've been working on. And then they can reach out and send us an email if they are curious to learn more about what we do. Brilliant. Hello and welcome. Chia Bella Jane. <laughs> to our uh, podcast or webinar. Excited. Hi, great. I'm really happy that you're here, that you made the time for us. Um, uh, uh, my name is Jaro Valdek. I am a board member of Women in Film and Television. And I presume most of you know me. I work as a DOP. And I have the pleasure to have Chia here today to talk to us, to, uh, uh, to talk to us about unit still photography did i say that right yep yeah yep. <laughs> okay wonderful <laughs> um often you hear uh, stills photography behind the scenes photography and um so before i get in, into your background and uh, all of your accomplishments uh what is the correct term if i'm honest i think if you ask different photographers they might give you a different answer um, for me personally, I fight against the behind the scenes photographer because it doesn't actually describe what we do. It's an aspect of what we do, but most of the time I'm photographing the scene as opposed to behind it. So um, I find it sort of actually confuses people as to what the job is. So um, unit stills photographer is probably the most kind of accurate. accurate. Okay, um, stills photographer. I just call myself photographer. <laughs> also very <laughs> you can't you can't really go wrong but um yeah I have a tendency to correct people when they call me behind the scenes um because yeah. <laughs> that that should be a separate job right someone else should I mean that. it is definitely part of the job it is definitely part of the job um these days a lot of the um what we used to call EPK and and the filming behind the scenes are referred to as behind the scenes so it confuses people as to why I'm there and what I'm doing, um, mm -hmm. which is why I kind of avoid that title. But um, but yeah, it's a, it's definitely an aspect of, mm -hmm. of the job. Wonderful, thank you. So Chia, um, I'm gonna try to take it from the beginning. Um, I don't wanna be the one to talk about uh, your um, uh, background, even though I've already learned it, um, but so I'm going to let you take it. I just know that you kind of move between uh, America and and England. Is that right? You yes. move, work in both countries. Yep. That's Did you correct. Take us somewhere roughly. How that <laughs> where, where it all began. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, quite a lot of people are familiar with my father, who was also a unit still photographer. Is, um, his, name, is his name David? David James. David, David James. James. Yeah. Um, so it sounds so sort of silver spoon to say I was born into it, but the nature of it is I was. Um, so I don't know that I would have known this job existed apart from the fact that it's been my whole life. Um, 
I spend a long time trying not to be my father, <laughs> as most <laughs> children <laughs> coming up under a legend will will do. Um, I I spent most of my childhood and teen years, you know, our our school holidays, our summers were spent traveling to be where he was, so that we could be, you know, together as a family. So from from since I could walk being on film sets has been like home to me, but more so probably than any other home I've actually had. It's the, the constant in my life. Um, but from a very young age, I didn't want to be a guest. I wanted to be, I knew I wanted to be part of the crew. I didn't like when I was treated as a guest. Um, I wanted to help, I wanted to muck in. So I think I always knew that being on a film set was where I wanted to be. And as the nature of working with him, my world was learning his cameras, learning his art, learning his role in that world. Um, and then when I came out of uni, I had that, you know, young 20s panic um, of what am I doing with my life? And around that time, I had been working with him as his assistant and, uh, you know, some really special projects with, by the nature of who he was and the jobs he did, some incredibly inspiring people who I admired highly. And I kept hearing from them what a legend my dad was. He's the best, he's the best. And I, I just absolutely freaked out and thought I will spend my life miserable trying to fill his shoes and then being able to do it. So I'm just not going to. <laughs> and fear sent me running in the other direction. Um, so I took a very different route. I sort of rejected him, not in a personal way, but sort of any handout from him, anything, gosh, for a while, I threatened to change my name. I was very <laughs> adamant that okay. I wasn't going to um, fall into sort of the nepotism. And um, yes, well, so. <laughs> what is it that you did that when you, yeah. Oh, I sorry, spent a decade trying not to. <laughs> Um, I spent the most of my 20s um, pursuing a different avenue. And because I wasn't so clear on what that avenue was, I followed some great advice and I followed the producing route because it allows you to look into all the aspects. You know, the producer is, has their finger in every part of the pie. So it gave me insight into all the different parts of filmmaking, from studio to publicity to production. And so I spent, um, you know, 10 years doing that and uh, never quite feeling fulfilled. Um, so I kept up the photography as a, as a love, as a passion. I didn't want to be reliant on it for a career because um, I thought, you know, that's what, how I'll end up hating it. So um, I kept it up by uh, doing portraits and I got involved with a dance company in Los Angeles and ended up doing dance photography for a long time. So I maintained my love of it and didn't, didn't realize I was honing certain aspects of my photography skills that would then come to play later. Um, and I went through a series of tragedies in my late twenties that very much shifted my perspective on career, life, everything under the sun. And um, realized I was really missing my connection to the UK because I've been in, in the States for a long time at that point. And uh, so I walked away from a really wonderfully, potentially great career at, uh, at the studio 
applied in production and took the risk to to go and reroute in the UK for a while. But I did that to an extremity. I, I literally walked away with no plan. Um, I was working in a pub when I got here and, um, you know, turning 30 and going, what have I done? Um, but that led to being in a place that I was suddenly very open to what came next. All of my plans, all of my decisions, all of my, you know, pushback had kind of hit a place of confusion, which strangely opened a door with me. Um, so when David came out to the UK, coincidentally, um, to work on Star Wars Force Awakens, an opportunity came up for him where, it, you know, those the, the franchise films, when it comes to photography, have a lot more going on than, than smaller films. Um, they want everything photographed. You've got to be in 20 places at one time. And he was overseeing kind of a lot going on that wasn't just on-set photography. So he needed, he needed extra hands. He needed the help to do that and felt like my history and production management combined with photography was actually a perfect position for me. All I could hear was, a, was you know, daddy's giving you a handout. So I was very, I rejected it immediately. No, oh, thank you. Oh, you did. <laughs> I did. Just, I think out of, out of that habit, that same fear. And uh, I remember him sitting across the, you know, the bar at the pub. He'd come in to visit me while I was pulling pints. And he made some comment about, you know, shrugging his shoulders at me like, well, okay, if, you know, this is, these tips and and this is working for you, then fine. And that stung a bit. Um, and away away, I thought about it and I realized, okay, you know what, it's an opportunity to work with him again, which I never had anything against him personally. I adore my dad. <laughs> we got along great. So I saw it as an opportunity to work with him again and, um, and you know, get back into doing what I was good at, get back on set. So it was, it was a one-time thing, <laughs> I thought. Um, the nature of being so busy became, because he trusted me, because of this sort of, you know, lifetime teaching that had gone on between us, whenever there was something he couldn't be in two places at once, he would shove the camera at me and go, you know, go cover this, this is happening, go over to second unit. And, and I was kind of filling in the gaps around him. And as a result of that, some of my imagery started showing up in the filmmaker selects. So the filmmakers became um, aware <laughs> and got involved and very, very kindly encouraged me to keep shooting. Um, I, you know, I, I credit JJ Abrams on that show with, with calling me to set and saying, keep doing this, what you're doing is great. Um, and as a result, that led on to the next film and then bit by bit, my, you know, dad and I became a sort of a duo, which had never really existed in, in film stills before, but was wonderful. Um, and then over time, he neared retirement and I went my separate ways and it sort of went from there. And I'm just continuing to ride the wave, I guess. That's amazing. You know what? I understand how when you explained that you you were afraid of you know maybe being um um accused of uh, being a nepo baby you know I, I think a lot of us in the arts who have parents uh also in the arts in the same uh, area we feel this way but if you look at it i tried to rationalize it this way like it 
I, I live in Ireland now. There's loads of farms. You know, farmers kind of give their farms to their sons to keep it going. Yeah. <laughs> or a lot of, like, people have their own little, like, uh, off-license or little grocery stores. They pass it on. And nobody, nobody you know, worries about what does it look no. like. No. So I think... I think we can let that one go. Like, oh, absolutely. And, and I think I've learned about nepotism, at least in, in my interactions, especially in the UK, in the UK film industry. Those parents who are who are training their children to care about the name that they carry on. Yeah. So they train them yeah. hard. You know, David was was tough on me. Yeah. <laughs> um, Good. Yeah, we, you know. Uh, the nature of it is we we became almost competitive as a result of it. So okay. I think actually what I had wrong is that 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 element of nepotism almost pushes us a bit harder mm -hmm. and, yeah. and maintains that name. Not always, but uh, yeah, I've come to see it a little bit more, more that way. Yeah. And it's I great. also feel like if you found that that wasn't your passion, that it's something you didn't want to do, and you wouldn't be doing it and you wouldn't be trying to get better and better and be on the top of your game, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Passionate. I that. Yeah. I want to uh, say that as we're speaking, I'm showing uh, Chia's uh, photo photography from her website. So uh, hopefully everybody can see it. <laughs> I can. <laughs> and it's beautiful. I wish I could say my website was more up to date. Uh, well, maybe this, <laughs> this podcast can inspire you too. Um, so I want to now take it to, since you said this, I had this beautiful question for you. How does one who wants to become a unit stills photographer go about it? I don't know if you have an answer. Maybe you do. <laughs> um, I've been asked the question a lot. So I've, oh. I've thought about the answers to that. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've, seen a lot of other photographers and how they've come up and how they get into the industry. And I think there's an element for getting into what I do is the same as anybody getting into the industry without that initial link, mm -hmm. which I think there's two ways you can go. And I think it's very dependent on where you are. And, and you know, if you're coming out of uni and you're young and you don't have a whole lot behind you yet, versus if you've had a career and you're, you're making a shift, mm -hmm. um, because effectively I stepped into doing stills photography when I was turning 30 um, and that's a niche. So yes. any part of the film industry that you're looking to get into has its own little niche. And I think the answers to that question can shift depending on which niche you're looking to get into. So with, with unit stills, I usually give one of two answers, which is, if you don't have much of a portfolio behind you and you are new to this and you want to get into the film industry in general and then stills from there, my my greatest suggestion is to go and be a production assistant first. Okay. You learn the whole set. You learn every department. You interact with every department. You really come to understand how a set functions. And that is probably more than 50% of the job. Mm -hmm. um, it's not just being a photographer, you know? Yes, you've got to have those skills to bring into it, but how you function on set is a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. um, and because I grew up in it, I had that insight. And I think that helps me massively. So I would always say, start there. 
Um, it also gives you access. You meet mm. all the people involved. It gives you those connections. It gives you those networks. And, you know, you can watch the stills photographer and go, oh, never mind. <laughs> I don't want to do that. <laughs> and, and then you don't waste time. You know, you might see somebody from visual effects who's also working with a camera, but doing something slightly different and go, that's much more my route. So I think it's invaluable to, to do that if you're starting out. Mm -hmm. If you've already done that and, and that's, you know, you've got that past and you're, you're looking at stills and going, I think I want to move into this. Um, then my suggestion is to build a portfolio, you know, photograph student films, photograph music videos, offer your services free at the beginning if you have to. You know, do it on the weekend, do short films with friends, because it doesn't really matter the film that you're working on. As the stills photographer, you decide for yourself how you photograph something. So, you know, I could have a 16 year old send me their portfolio from the student film that they just photographed. And I'm looking at these images and going, you could do my job tomorrow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Done. Great. Get in here. <laughs> Um, versus somebody who's been a portrait photographer for 10 years and is sending me theirs. And I'm going, I don't know that you can photograph this in the right way. I don't okay. know that you know quite how to sell what's happening around you on set. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think my, my advice falls into those two categories of, of building your portfolio to show what you, and see if you can photograph in the correct way for what mm -hmm. units still do and also to, to get to know the set. Wow. Um, so when it comes to photographing the correct ways, I've, <laughs> I've done a little bit of stills photography um, on shorts and on features. And I wonder if there is a, I, I have so many questions that, that are practically uh, like targeting certain areas. But I wonder, are you on set when they're ready for you to do your job? Are you given a set amount of time and then do you arrange the actors within the space so that you can capture the composition that you need? And Or do you have 20 seconds and you just have to click whatever is in front of you? 20 seconds would be generous. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay, um, so tell me more. 90% of the time you are an observer on set um, because what we're doing obviously gets used later. What I'm doing, it doesn't affect the actual scene that's being filmed. I mean, occasionally you're asked to photograph something that, that is used in the film. So that's slightly different, but 90% of the time you are trying to find a space to photograph while not getting in the way of the crew around you making the film, right? Cause that's the priority. I've got nothing to sell if they can't make it. So, mm -hmm. Um, so no, it, <laughs> there's definitely not set time for the photographers. Um, it's also very dependent on the film set that you're on, the people mm -hmm. involved. Um, not everybody is comfortable with that mm -hmm. extra camera lens. Um, not everybody understands behind the camera what you're doing and why you're in their way. Um, mm -hmm. so that can really make a difference in, in, how your day plays out. Mm -hmm. But 90% um, of the time you are just trying to find an angle that works both behind the camera for you physically and also captures the moment that you're trying to get from the scene. Um, 
no whole scene is ever, unless you're doing sort of a war movie with big battle, no whole scene is ever important. Mm-hmm. There's usually one, two, maybe three moments within a scene that work in 2D, that work yeah. in print. You know, you need, you know, both of your actors turning in the right direction at the right time. You need the moment when they're not pulling a face. So I try to kind of get in for the moments I need to be there and then remove myself as quickly as possible. Um, that said, sometimes there is something really epic happening that mm-hmm. you know is is the moment that everybody's going to ask you for later. That the filmmaker, the director, the actor, the producers, the studio are going to go, what have you got from that? And those mm-hmm. are instinctive, you know, like, you know, it's your... I, for, I think you might have gone past one of the images just now. For June, there was a moment with the entire Atreides family. Yes. Mm-hmm. So obviously I walked into set that day and went, okay, that's never going to happen again um, mm-hmm. in this film. So, and they're all lined up perfectly. I didn't, I had very little sort of moving around. It was shifting tiny bits, but they were just perfectly lined up facing the opposite direction. <laughs> and so that one, I, you know, yes. Then I go to the director and the first AD and I say, take a look at what we're looking at here. You and I both know that that's going to be huge. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes they can see what I'm seeing because it is an iconic moment. Um, if not, I have to sort of convince them a little bit. But mm-hmm. in those occasions, they will usually let me do it at the end of the take. So when we finished, when the performances are all done and everybody's happy, before we move on, they will call for a still. Um, and in that moment, it's like, you know, you're trying to direct the cast because they're, they're now looking at you to what are we doing differently? Mm-hmm. So you're trying to direct the cast and sometimes a lot of them at the same time as the rest of the crew are, are getting ready to move on. They're yeah. already at work for what's next. So yes. everything's moving around you. People are walking through the background. Yes. You know, you have you kind of hope that your first AD is on board with you and is making the announcement for everybody. It's helping you get this done. That doesn't always happen. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it's a, it's how fast can you do it? Wow. Uh, sometimes okay. it's a matter of a couple of seconds. And if you don't get it, it's your out. Oh well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> so I thought I so I thought that on productions of the size that you work on that. You you get a little bit more time than I do, <laughs> but you just describe what I do <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, and uh, I'm really sorry. You should have more time. Sales photographers should get a bit more time. I um, think used to. I think they used to. I think it's become the way that we make films these days. You know, mm-hmm. everything's in such a rush. Schedules are too tight. Um, which all comes down to the lack of budget. Yeah. Um, and because of that pressure on everyone else, it stills is the first thing to to go. Be cut, yeah. So but then, then that's what they rely on for marketing. So, <clears throat> wow, this is incredible. So you take snaps during the take, I presume, on silent setting. Yes. And then when you do get those 10 seconds, then obviously you try to arrange the actors, talk to them, maybe get some expression uh, and wow okay so I'm going to ask you this um what kind of uh, personality traits do you think is helpful to have to work 
under such pressure with, I presume, you know, huge movie stars, important people. <laughs> um, who are you as a person to succeed in this environment? Interesting question. And I have a conflicting answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think there's an element for me personally, because I grew up around it, I don't see a celebrity or a more important person. I see the actor. My job as a photographer, your job is to be the actor. Your job is to be the DOP. We all have a role to play. You know, we're, we're not doctors. We're not curing disease. We're making entertainment. And yes, sometimes those films are incredibly important and, and you know, can change the world. But in terms of the day-to-day -day of what we do, what we do is, is should be fun, mm -hmm. should be enjoyable. And I think the hierarchy that I do believe in is the hierarchy of the importance of what you're doing in the moment that you're doing it. So mm -hmm. when we say action and the scene is on the actor, they are the most important person in the room. We give them that quiet. We give them that respect for them to bring their best. Mm -hmm. When the electricians are lighting, I stay out of their way because they've got something to do and, and I don't want to conflict with that. When the director is, you know, having a moment with his actor, her actor, you know, you, you give them the respect, you, you leave the room, you stay out the way. Mm -hmm. By the same token, I would like to think <laughs> that when a photograph is needed, there's an importance there to that, that they will respect as well. Yeah. So I don't tend to be affected by the kind of like, oh, you're, you know, you're so important. And I'm, I'm asking something of you. I, I respect yeah. that I'm asking something in their day that maybe they're not comfortable with, or maybe is a distraction for them. And mm -hmm. I try to approach them human to human with that respect towards what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But um, but I think I'm I'm less affected by the sort of celebrity and VIP of it. Um, what I have tried to do personality wise is be somebody who I'm observant, mm -hmm. incredibly observant, and I can read a room. So if it's not the right day to ask for a still, unless I really, really have to, and then I'll get, you know, director involved if, if necessary mm -hmm. I will okay I'll push it so I, I think that kind of understanding of other people is really important mm -hmm. um and that goes for reading the room as well you know if if a DP <laughs> is lining up a shot but I see something amazing in the actor in that moment I'm not going to step in front of them lining up to go no. and get it you know <laughs> no <laughs> never 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 um so I think I think being able to to this is why I came back to saying be, be a production assistant, learn the set. Mm -hmm. I really think that that being observant and being intuitive to what's happening around you mm -hmm. and, and the other people involved has has been probably the most important aspect mm -hmm. of the personality mm -hmm. trait for me. Um, that and the ability to think on your feet fast for for what we were just talking about. You know, to mm -hmm. be able to kind of prep yourself for, okay, I know in 10 seconds, I've got to get this. What am I asking for? How clear can I be with those directions? Um, are my settings set to go? Yes. You know, mm -hmm. Multitasking, I guess, is, is the answer to that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the ability to kind of get all those things ready so that you do 
you don't want to have that moment come and then you're going oh uh sorry hang on one second my camera's <laughs> not right or you know yes. they're looking at you for direction and you're sort of this weak little voice saying <laughs> oh, um, well maybe you could do that yes. they're, gone. they're gone they'll be offset before you can blink so um, you are basically a director yourself you in are that moment yes. in that moment Yes. And I think you have to be able to have that strength of character to do that, but then no ego because you've got to be able to then the second you've got your shot back into the shadow, mm-hmm. you know, you are once again, nothing. That's so really well um, to be able to flip between those two things is mm-hmm. probably important as well. That's, that's brilliant. Thank you. Um, I, now that you're talking about what it, what it is that you do bits and pieces, what, how would you describe your um, like a day load? What, What is it that you do within a day? Um, on set. That. that very much depends on what the day looks like and okay. what the film is. You know, if we're in a room full of green screen, I'm probably at a table editing. Mm-hmm. If we are on a war set um, with things exploding left and right, then I'm making sure my gear is protected. Do I have everything on me because I'm not going to be able to go back and forth to the truck or the base camp um, and becoming a sort of, I don't know what they used to call those musicians who had the drum and the clang, you know, like that. <laughs> one man band. <laughs> one man band. Yeah, you are. You're literally that. Um, and on some days, you know, you've got to be able to run with what's happening. Yeah. Um, so it very much depends on the day and the film, but in a more general sense, um, I try to be there for rehearsal. Okay. Uh, I'm allowed in sometimes it's a private rehearsal but most of the time I try to be there for a rehearsal because I see it as an opportunity to a figure out my moments so before we even start shooting I know what I'm looking for and mm-hmm. how much I need to be in the way or not um, and then it's also an opportunity for me to choreograph myself with the team behind the camera so you know the, the grips and the cameraman and the, the camera team the sparks whoever is whoever is going to be in that little tiny circle especially if it's a moving shot something like that it gives yes. me an opportunity to kind of work with them so that I don't show up at the last second yes get in the way yeah. um so yeah so I'm usually there for rehearsals and then then I back off and let them light and do what they need to do and when the cast come back in ready to shoot By that point, I usually have an idea of where I need to be. So it's a matter of people managing to get back into that space. And yes. um, if I can get the t- the shot that I know I need in one take, I will do that and I will get out of the way. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's very appreciated by the people in the room who are fighting for that space. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a really tricky shot, then I'm there with everybody until the last go at it. Yes. Um, And that can look anything from from me hiding under under a piece of equipment in the darkness to literally walking with Steadicam and mm-hmm. and working that out. Um, and then the day is a cycle of that as we film, you know. So then okay. we move on to the next scene, and it's it's you know we back to the rehearsal, and we kind of go through that cycle together. And what, so you said, if, say, if you have a day that's full of uh, shooting with green screen, then you'd be editing. But what if the production mostly shoots on sets that you need to capture? Do you get extra time after production to finish? I'm not post? given extra time. Um, so, <clears throat> so every now and then, as much as you know, you want to, you want the big sets and the beautiful stuff to photograph. That's thrilling. 
every now and then on a green screen day thrown in is very helpful because okay. <laughs> it does okay. give you that time to to catch up um again I think different photographers will have a different answer for this mm-hmm. I'm a perfectionist and I you know was raised never to turn in my homework without being proud of what I was turning in <laughs> So I'm not somebody who can take the card out of my camera, download and send for my own sake. Yes. I go through my work and I do a basic edit, but Mm -hmm. you know, everything we supply is raw because as, as you've seen, like in the marketing campaigns, oftentimes they, they manipulate, they change, they add it to posters. So I don't do too much to the actual raw files. Sometimes my camera bangs against my hip and I take 20 pictures of the floor. I take okay. them out, you know, okay. <laughs> I save the lab and the studio, the time of having to worry about that. I take those away. Um, uh, and then it's for me, a matter of going through and pulling selects, which for, for what I'm looking for in, in terms of that process in the job itself is my way of showing the filmmakers here's what I'm doing every day. Mm-hmm. They're not mm-hmm. seeing what I'm shooting. You know, they're, they're over here. I might be off in another corner getting a different angle. So it's an opportunity for me to take, you know, 10 images and send them to them as they will be seen in magazine. So if okay. there's a wire, unless it's a behind the scenes shot, if there's a wire, I'll take the wire out. Mm-hmm. I'll go to that effort to kind of give them a full version of what we're looking at mm-hmm. because they might come back to me and say, this isn't quite the tone we want you know it's not quite how we want to sell it we Mm -hmm. need more humor we need more action we need more this um so it it gives me feedback which I wouldn't otherwise have so I tend to take the Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. it's on my own time to do that that's very smart um okay so you mentioned something interesting you said that um you give the raw images to I presume the producer or the studio. studio. Yeah, okay. So um I had a question prepared for you whether you coordinate with the DOP the final look, whether you grade the images the way the DOP is hoping to have the final film graded as. But it sounds like you're you're not ultimately in control of that, are you? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ultimately, <laughs> ultimately no, but that is also why no matter what I do, I save them as a JPEG. So my selects, I save as a JPEG and I send it in as selects, as a separate kind of folder. The raw file still exists. They still get the raw file because maybe during production, our DOP is going for a really heavily desaturated look. Mm-hmm. And then somewhere in post, the filmmakers all decide this isn't working. Let's give it a yellow tone. And yes. green contrast. <laughs> that sounds hideous. That's bizarre. That was a terrible <laughs> suggestion. But, but they might change what they're doing, which means my select is now irrelevant. Yes. So it allows them as the studio to go, okay, we know we still love that image. We need to go and change the colors on it. They can take the raw image and match it to whatever they need for the, for the outcome. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I always turn in the raw. And uh do you are you the copyright owner or is the studio no we used to be back in the day but now it's a it's a full buyout unfortunately there's so so many images that don't make the campaign that aren't 
used for whatever specific campaign style they choose <laughs> that I love that sit on hard drives at the studio and never see the light of day. Um, yeah. It, it's heartbreaking, but it, it's the nature of the job, unfortunately. But I do try, I do try on every project to have that conversation with the DOP at the beginning to understand what they're doing. And I make sure that my selects are as close as possible to that mm-hmm. because the studio will see those selects and take it as their guideline to what mm-hmm. this will look like. Mm-hmm. Some DPs want to be involved with stills and 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 love that interaction and we chat mm-hmm. and we, you know, yeah. we collaborate. Um some just sort of shrug at me like you do you really? <laughs> wow I mean I'm surprised because this still I I see it as an extension of the DOP's work you know I do too so, they don't feel the same way and so when you uh, earlier I showed some of the images that you took um on different productions uh so at which point are you allowed to share those put that on your maybe website or I I I know that you've also um had a book of still yes. photographs come out. So at which point are you allowed to do that since you are not the copyright owner? So the June book that came out was done through Legendary and Inside Editions. Okay. So they, they control that aspect. Um, it just allowed me an opportunity to go through and select some of the imagery that didn't get used um, which was thrilling because as I was just saying so often yeah. so many images that never see the light of day from these films and June of all of them mm. is the one that's so cinematic it's so beautiful that you just kind of go like oh <laughs> it's heartbreaking that these didn't get used in, in yes. where mm. that um, so when Tanya Lapointe the producer opened up the door to doing a book Uh, it just was so exciting because finally there's a project and and that one of all projects to be able to show some of that imagery mm-hmm. that, that wasn't otherwise used. I think there's maybe more than 200 images in the book that were never used for the campaign. So okay. they would otherwise never have been seen. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really, yeah, exciting that they get that life. Yes, I can totally imagine that. And so at that point, once the campaign is out, is that when you're allowed to share? Yeah, so once I, um, I mean I still I still check with the studios mm-hmm. because every image I take has an approvals process. Mm-hmm. So I would never post something of of an actor without making sure that that image was approved. Yes. Um Unfortunately, with social media, quite a lot of people don't realize that that approvals process exists. Mm-hmm. So quite a lot of crew tend to post their own photos mm-hmm. without realizing that I go through a, a very rigorous process yes. before mm-hmm. any of my images are released. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I, I kind of I defer to the studio when they've released something, I can share it. Um, mm-hmm. If we get to the point where the film has been out for a while and maybe it's come out of cinemas and it's it's run its course. Um, and there's images that I still want to show. Then I'll touch base with the folks where the studio and say, hey, look, these three or four, did they get approved? Are they okay? Can I share mm-hmm. them? Can I use them? Usually there isn't a problem. Usually by that okay. point, the process, as long as it was an approved image, they're fine with it. Wow. But it is a long run, isn't it? You have a long wait before yeah. you get to see your work out there. And it's interesting too, because being on set, you don't have 
the studio team with you. So they are nameless mm. to the crew and the cast that I'm photographing and working with mm. who come back to me when the film's out going, hey, can I get this image? Can I share I this image? And, hey, remember the day we shot this? Can I have that? And yeah. I'm happy to say, suddenly I'm going, no, sorry, that really great thing that you and I did as artists on set when we collaborated. I've got to send you to a person you've never heard of to go and ask them if that's okay. <laughs> it's a little, yeah. it's a little strange, and I wish it. I wish they had more presence so people understood that. Mm-hmm. Wow, you know what? I realize the time is flying, and I'm having so much fun, uh, <laughs> and I've got so many more questions to ask. <laughs> right, so I just want to remind people: if you do have uh, questions you would like to ask, Tia. Please put them in the uh, chat. Uh, I actually, I see there are a couple, so I'm going to get to them shortly. I'd still like to ask you just the basic thing about equipment. Is that something that you have to have yourself or does the production provide it? That's something you, it's uh, like your toolkit. Yeah, you, mm-hmm. you bring that with you. And how do you know, say if you're someone trying to get into the industry, how do you know that your equipment will be sufficient for a job? Go and be a production assistant. (laughs) (laughs) That'll give you all the clues you need. Um, But no, I I answered this question for a photographer who had come from the portrait world and was stepping in to do a film. Um, You need to be able to shoot raw. You need to be able to shoot to the kind of quality that it's going to be on a billboard or a side of a building, potentially. Um, Not everything is for social media. Um, so I think, you know, knowing that you're using a camera body that has the qualifications for that kind of size of imagery, um, is, is a base level. And then from there, for me personally, and again, every photographer, I think would give a different answer to this, but for me personally, I'm about capturing the moments and the speed of that. So I have a very limited number of lenses on me at any one time, um, I have a wide and I have a zoom and, and I'm, you know, relying on one for my wide shots and then jumping to the other for anything tighter and closer so that I can be able to switch between the two without going back to my bag, without going back to my lenses and switching anything out. Um, so I like to have that whole range on me at any given time. And for me, that means shooting with zoom lenses and giving myself the spectrum from, from wide to portrait. Um, not everybody shoots that way. So, uh, just, I think as long as you have, yeah, it's, it's got to be the quality of lens and camera body beyond that, which of those is very personal. Some people love Sony. Some people love Fuji. I'm a Fuji girl. Yeah. Are you? Also, also <laughs> a Canon girl. Um, for mm-hmm. me, there's a mix in those two that's worked out for me. Um, mm-hmm. Different lenses, different bodies, different reasons. But um, some people are very dedicated to their system. Um, that's how you feel holding that equipment on set. You've got to be comfortable with it. You've got to know how to use it for the sake of the speed and and the changes that are happening around you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I might go a little bit too technical and if it is say let's keep that for next time yeah <laughs> but I'm just wondering um 
do you try to match the settings on your camera to the settings that the DOP has on their cameras? Within within reason, yes. So if they've if they've set to a certain temperature, I'll match the temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of it, if I'm honest. Um, yeah. <laughs> unless they're doing something really quirky with like a fisheye lens, or you know, they're really pushing some kind of style that I need to then that I can't match with my regular equipment mm-hmm. then then I might pull something in for the sake of that um or question if it's going to even work for stills mm-hmm. but in terms of the lenses they're using again no because they might be shooting something really specific whereas mm-hmm. I'm getting the wide yeah. I'm not always shooting exactly what they're shooting in fact very rarely am I shooting what the frame looks like for the for the DOP mm-hmm. And would you say that the majority of the photographs you take in a day, they could be used as stills or do you also mix in some of the behind the scenes? Oh yeah, and absolutely a mix. Um, okay. Because you don't know what's going to happen when it's going to happen. It, it, it's a little bit reportage style in terms of how your day functions for you. Yes, we rehearse the scenes and those parts are a little bit more planned. Um, the rest of it is very much being on the fly like a reportage photographer. So, you know, if we're shooting a portrait, really beautiful close up on an actor and, um, you know, there's a light coming from the, from the corner. And then our director runs in and <laughs> in front of him and the two of them are, are having a moment, but that director is catching the light. So he's silhouetted mm. making this up, but yeah, all of a sudden I'm dropping that lens. I'm pulling up this one and I'm photographing that as a behind the scenes, which isn't color toned or, you know, that's the real life moment. So I have to be able to switch between those. Mm -hmm. So I try not to lock myself in so heavily to whatever lens DOP camera is. Mm, Interesting. And I presume some, you know, sometimes they will obviously film lenses are different manufacturers, different brands than what the photographic photographic ones would be. So the differences are there. Uh, Listen, I'm going to just have a look at the questions that are posted here for you, um, uh, as I promised. So I have one from Tanner Brandstaff. I hope I said that correctly. Can you please share an example of your average day on set? Well, I think we kind of answered that. Can I cover that one? When Good you question. fall on the oh, but a follow-up, when you fall on the call sheet and what is your media management like? I like that. Where do I fall on the call sheet? Hmm. I don't know if I understand the question. <laughs> well Under uh, still? <laughs> I mean, I would ask this as far as call sheet goes. Do you have the same call time as say the camera crew? Um my call time is not regulated. So because because nobody's really paying attention to me on set in a nice way um I sort of decide when I show up now that doesn't mean I come in halfway through the day yes I think again every photographer would answer that slightly differently it's not a locked thing um personally the the child who grew up on set who wanted to be crew that's still in me I'm there at crew call I'm okay. there for rehearsal with the camera crew. I I view myself as having having been part of the American system for a long time, which still is part of the camera department. I view myself as part of the camera department. So if they're at eight, I'm there at eight. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So you're one of the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, uh, Tanner had one more question. And I wonder if that also kind of got answered because you have limited time to capture a moment. Do you feel required to use a zoom lens? So I wonder, like, as in if you can't crop, kind of remove people or something, you feel that you need to zoom in? Yes. I, I On both shoulders, I have a zoom. Okay. And do yeah. you do you it, have a zoom? That... Sorry, I'm interrupting. Oh no, that's okay. I was just it just makes the, the process faster for me. And so when you say when you say this camera, that camera is one of them stills and one of them behind the scenes, or nope, is it I, wide? I just do stills. I just do stills. So so any video footage is done from the behind the scenes cameraman. Oh, I meant I apologize. I meant to say is one camera stills from the scene and one oh sorry yeah oh, I understand I understand um no <laughs> mix of both the mix the mix is relevant to what it is that I'm shooting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and uh now that we're coming up towards the end if anyone else has uh, more questions please put them in the Q&A or chat um do you is it important for you to market yourself to to put stuff out regularly on social media or to update your website or do you do you just get hired because somebody had a great experience with you and you delivered brilliant photographs and that's how it works probably a bit of both um you know there are hundreds and hundreds of filmmakers out there who've never heard of me that I've never worked with that should they work on a project and my name is presented to them, will want to know who I am. So Mm -hmm. I maintain, well, I'm supposed to maintain my website Um, (laughs) and and I keep up social media for that sake. So if somebody, you know, uh, clicks onto me today, not having ever heard of me or knowing what my work is, they can get a, a quick and relevant view of what my most recent work is. So I do it for that sake. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was definitely more important when I was promoting myself at the beginning and and trying to get my foot in the door as a photographer. Um, nepotism did not help me in no. that sense. No, no. If anything, I think it pushed the other way. I think people were like, mm, um, "Prove yourself first. Uh, so, so I had to do that. And at that time, I think every time an image was released, it was straight up on my website. You know, I was sending it around to the, at the end of each film, I was sending it around to the photo editors to say, hey, look, I've just finished this. So I kept that up very much at the beginning. I'm fortunate that I think, you know, I'm a decade down the road now. And I'd like to think that my work is starting to speak for itself. Um, <laughs> and I do have, I do have some filmmaker relationship, relationships that, yeah, you know, they, we have a great experience. I hit the brief for them in a way that they're so happy they want to use me the next time. Um, sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Sometimes your schedule changes and, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's not kind of that set in stone, but um, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, a bit of both. Okay. And um, who, who hires you? I don't know if that's a vague also, question. Or... A little bit. Yeah. It's an interesting question actually. Um, Cause I think that's a lot of where the confusion about the position comes from as well. Um, I can be hired. I'm, I'm technically hired by the production, right? So the executive producer on the film is the one that calls me up, does a deal with me, hires me for the film. The choice of me 
or, or whoever the still photographer is. That depends on the film, the filmmakers involved, the studio involved, the subject of the film and the cast sometimes. Uh, if it's a Tom Cruise film, it's Tom's choice. If it's, um, you know, uh, a newer filmmaker um, who doesn't have a still photographer that they've worked with regularly before, then maybe the producer might suggest, hey, you know, I, I've worked with Chia, take a look at her. Studio might also recommend me and put me on a short list. But in those scenarios where, the, where there isn't a specific person requesting me, mm. then it becomes a director's choice. Director oh, and producer kind of get to the final say on that. But the suggestions come in from studio producers, mm -hmm. sometimes the DP might throw a suggestion out if they're looking for somebody. So um, in terms of networking, you kind of have to network across the board. Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but then but then who I actually answer to on set is a different answer as well. You know, I am answering to those people that hired me, the creative producer and the director, but I'm also answering to the needs of the studio team. I'm also answering to the cast who I'm asking to put my camera in front of, you know, mm. they want to see, they want to know, they want to trust what you're doing. Um, so there's a lot of bosses. Yes, <laughs> yeah, and you have to please everyone. <laughs> try and, and, and try. get your job done exactly um, okay uh and uh what do do you think is it important for you or do you think it's important for a stills photographer to have representation like an agent or there's very little representation matter? for unit stills photographers really I wish there was more i wish there was more um the, i think there are a couple of agents out there but not many okay so, so you kind of have to negotiate your own contracts and learn yeah. to walk in that yeah. uh, space and environment yourself. Oh, that's yeah. You have to have sense. sort of multiple personalities to do this. Yeah, job. your own manager and everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been wonderful, really. Um, I want to ask you, Chia, is there a question that you wish I had asked you and I didn't? Oh, no, no. It, oh, that's a thrown me there um I did say there would be no tricky questions but yeah that was tricky probably broke oh, it. I, <laughs> I appreciate you not asking you know what's your favorite movie that you've worked on it's ah. <laughs> impossible to answer um and then you're playing favorites and those filmmakers yeah. are going oh, oh, I'm not I'm not gonna okay. ask you that no 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 no, no, no but no, I you know because I I am from the business and I'm really interested in the day-to-day -day and how does it work so I feel like you've satisfied my needs to know. Okay, good. But, okay, but if, good. if if you thought that, you know, there there's something you wanted to be asked, asked, then um, and it's okay. You know, you think that, that if, if I were going to throw something extra in just by the nature of the group that we're talking to and it being mm. with film and TV, um, I would, I would probably, you know, just tap onto that subject and being a woman doing this job, um, there didn't used to be many female photographers doing what I do. There are far more now. We are coming up in numbers. Mm -hmm. um, being on set is an interesting world for a woman. It was a man's world. It started as a man's world. It originated 
as a man's world. So that lingers. Its history follows with it, even though our numbers are absolutely exponentially multiplying on set, which is wonderful. But, and this might sound slightly controversial for some women, um, I personally don't want to be hired just because I'm a woman. Mm -hmm. I want to be hired because I'm good at the job. And I think there's a lot happening at the moment where women are getting opportunities that actually they're not qualified for. Mm. There's plenty of women getting them who are, and I'm so behind these women who mm -hmm. are giving us a good name and, and promoting women in film in the best way possible. But there's a lot of women coming through who are doing the opposite oh. because they're being given the position just because they're a woman. And I'm seeing that quite a lot. Um, you know, I've even had opportunities where I was hired before they even knew who, who I was, didn't see my mm -hmm. work, didn't, just because I was the female on the list. So would you say, would you say yeah, that I'm in that instance, <laughs> would you, yeah, would you say that in that instance, it's good to know what, what your skills are and when, when to yeah. kind of say yes to a job and maybe. I think I, I personally wouldn't take a job unless I knew I could nail it. You oh. know, unless I, <laughs> I, I knew I could prove for all women that we can do this. Hmm. So I think, um, so you feel the responsibility to to create a good name and to yeah absolutely uh, absolutely and I also think the attitude you take towards it on set is is I've I've watched other women on set and it's an interesting mix. I don't come in battling. I don't come in flexing my female muscles and saying you know I'm a woman <laughs> I'm here and re respect me. I take my opportunities, especially with the misogynists. Mm. And and very specifically, the ones who don't realize they are, those are my favorite. Those are my favorite to educate. Those are the ones who make little comments at you because they think they're being flirty or they think they're being funny. And they're not. They're just being completely misogynistic. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones I interact with the most. And I come back at them with the same funny, flirty, whatever tone. Mm -hmm. I match them in that. And I guide the conversation around to get them thinking like, why, why wouldn't a woman be doing that? Interesting. Why, hmm. You know, I get them questioning for themselves mm -hmm. why that's even a thing. Um, and usually the outcome of those conversations is so much more effective. It changes something in their perspective that shifts their attitude towards me for the better. And hopefully then not just me, for every woman they meet on yes. set. Hmm. versus getting into the, into fights over it and, and making comments like that they should understand when they don't, I'd rather educate them. Um, and hmm. I feel like that takes us further. I like that you say that. Uh, and I'm, now that our time is up, I'm going to have to do the, a follow-up uh, on that. Okay. <laughs> How to handle uh, people like that as well. Uh, sometimes it can be a difficult um, kind of path to navigate and uh, I'm glad you're there and that you're taking it with your female muscles. <laughs> <laughs> what I've got left of them. <laughs> I really appreciate that you, you gave us this time, that you spent your hour with us. It was a pleasure. Really, this was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. I want to thank everybody that tuned in and listened. Uh, for your, I thank you for your questions as well. 
And I'm now going to uh, stalk your website even more often. <laughs> in, in yeah, a... I, I might need to update that. <laughs> <laughs> and I wish you very well uh, in your future, in your personal and career future. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, and hope to see you out there somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Hope to work with you one day. There we go. Likewise. <laughs> Support the work we do by becoming a member at WFT.ie.